I'm Rex Salisbury, and this is the Cambrian FinTech Podcast. On this show, we talk to the founders, operators, and investors who are shaping the future of financial services. Welcome. We have got another awesome episode for you today. I'm pulling one of our most popular interviews from our YouTube channel, which, as a reminder, you can find a link to on our website at cambrianhq.com if you prefer to watch these live. This interview is with fintech legend William Hockey, co-founder of Plaid. We go deep on his newest venture, Column, which has made quite a stir in the fintech world. This episode was originally recorded in June 2022 when William and the team emerged from stealth after three years of building in secret. Stay tuned. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. I thought, you know, we could have a pretty interesting model to kind of step in and, you know, I think rethink some of the supply chain from the ground up, which is why we ended up uh, starting starting Column in 2019. You know, I think if we kind of take a step back and, and say, hey, we could kind of design this from scratch, we could kind of really go back on first principles, what would we do? If we wanted to provide low-level technical and financial infrastructure for companies to build. Fintech isn't profitable right now. And what you need to do, these fintechs need to do, is they need to control more of the ecosystem. Hey, everyone. I'm Rex, a founder at Cambrian, a community for founders and builders in fintech. Incredibly excited for today's program. Today's guest is none other than William Hockey, the co-founder and CTO of Plaid. In 2019, though, William stepped down from Plaid, and for three years, he and a small team worked in stealth on a new company, Column. Today, we're going to talk about that company. William describes Column as a, quote, nationally chartered bank that has built every facet of the technology from scratch. So today, what we're going to cover is what inspired William to start his new venture and why he believes the technology they've built will be critical for the fintech ecosystem as it scales. So very excited to dive in here. Hey, William, welcome. Hey, Rex. Thanks for, thanks for having me. So I want to start at the very beginning, 2019. You've been the CTO, co-founder of Plaid. You decide to start something new. What's the inspiration uh, and things you learned at Plaid that led you to wanting to start out on your, your new venture? As you mentioned, you know, I started Plaid with my co-founder, Zach, back in 2012. And it was just an absolutely incredible journey. And Plaid is, I think, still one of the best, if not the best company out there. But you know, I was lucky enough in that process to just to meet with you know literally thousands of different companies and startups building kind of across the financial ecosystem in the U.S. and abroad. And over time, you start to realize very viscerally the pains of building in financial services in the U.S. And there's some amazing things and some really some really hard things. We recognize that the supply chain and financial services was getting too long and too complicated. And that had a lot of negative effects. Is one both from a regulatory perspective, but also from a cost perspective and a technology perspective. And I thought, you know, we could have a pretty interesting model to kind of step in and, you know, I think rethink some of the supply chain from the ground up, which is why we ended up starting Column in 2019. Yeah. And what was the kind of original inklings and maybe some of the what you saw customers struggling with over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think if you kind of look at as fintech evolves, I think the use cases have gotten much more complex, you know, too. Historically, when we were just doing, you know, basic things like bill payments or personal financial management, you know, as the industry evolved from kind of 2008 onwards, we got to a point where fintech today is, you know, you're building these 
relatively full-featured financial companies and financial systems from scratch that don't fit into kind of the normal paradigm of a bank. And because of that, as it evolved, I think the underlying infrastructure in order to do that changed and evolved. And I don't think we think that that infrastructure kind of evolved in a relatively productive way. And so kind of, you know, what we started to look at is if you look at it, there was kind of this like sponsor bank middleware vendor model where you have these banks that are responsible for, you know, the regulatory and compliance obligations. And then they vendor out a majority of their kind of technical obligations to these large core providers like a FI server, FIS, or Jack Henry. You know, most of the things that a bank does, like swiping a debit card or sending money or like holding funds or like a website and a mobile app, that is rarely if ever actually done by the bank. It's all done by these third-party providers. And that's kind of the way the industry's been for a long period of time. And then what you have is you have these fintechs that, you know, want to go do bank-like activities. And so they go find a partner to that. And so then they go to these partners and and then these partners, you know, don't really have the technical capabilities to serve them. And so then that also gets outsourced to all of these middleware providers, you know, whether it be these payment orchestration platforms or banks of service providers or whatever you kind of want to call them. And so then you kind of step back and you look at yourself as a fintech and you're like, okay, I want to do something relatively basic. Like, I don't know, hold money and like move money on behalf of my clients. And you have, you know, four, five, six, seven vendors upstream of you to do something relatively basic. And each one of them has their own kind of confusing compliance requirements. They all do technical compliance. They all charge a lot of money. And so then, you know, 18 months later, maybe you have your product out. And not only is it actually probably unoptimal, you probably can't move very fast and your economics are pretty poor. And we sort of see this happen with a lot of our customers, where I think these relatively basic businesses were just drowned in complexity, and we're running these things in margin profiles that just weren't profitable. And I think when I look at this, like I fundamentally believe that we need competition in financial services, and fintech is the best way that that competition is going to serve consumers and businesses. And so I really think that this industry needs to survive. It needs to be resilient. It needs to be profitable. And just the way it operates right now, it's not. It is it's yep. skirting a lot of rules that I think should be followed. And it's working in a revenue model that just is fundamentally unprofitable. And so I thought, you know, after seeing this for, you know, almost 10 years, I was like, you know, I think if we kind of take a step back and say, hey, if we could kind of design this from scratch, if we could kind of really go back on first principles, what would we do? And that's kind of what we end up doing with Column. Yeah, and there's the old adage that in technology, there's kind of two ways of building products. There's unbundling and rebundling. And unbundling is nice because you can pick off individual pieces, you can move quickly, you can serve specific segments of customers, but then you can end up with a high degree of fragmentation, but it still has its place. And then there's rebundling, which is where you come back, you learn from the unbundled structure that there are actually certain synergies that are hard when everything's federalized. And so you need to reintegrate. And so I guess that's one of the core things behind Column. But to actually go out and to build like a holistically incorporated infrastructure, you actually need to go and and buy a bank and build (laughs) a tremendous amount of technology. So maybe just talk through a little bit that process of going and kind of thinking about the decision to purchase a bank. And then we can jump from there into kind of understanding the technology and what you guys have built. So kind of going in, I think we had a relatively narrow focus on what we wanted to do, which is we wanted to provide 
low-level technical and financial infrastructure for companies to build, you know, financial companies off of. And that is, you know, things like moving money, holding money, and lending money. We don't go very far up the stack, right? So we are not a, a provider that will do everything for you. We wanted to do a couple things really, really well. But we, in order to do that, you know, you have to be a regulated entity, is we needed to be a bank in order to do that. And so, you know, we were lucky enough to go out, meet with a bunch of um, different institutions, and then find one that we fell in love with that had a great business model, had a great management team, that had a great relationship with the regulators, and had no issues. And so, you know, we partnered up with them and purchased them, you know, a few years ago, and kind of in parallel to that, and before that, really started building out this technology. Yep. And that's NorCal Bank, which has one branch in Chico, California, I believe. Yeah. So, yeah. So we bought a bank called Northern California National Bank. It's out in Chico. It's subsequently been renamed Column, but we still operate the branch out in Chico under the marketing name of NorCal. And they're still doing what they're doing before and they're excellent at that. And then one thing you've done differently too, in terms of not just buying a bank, but also is the ownership structure is different from other traditional, you know, at least venture backed companies. So talk through how you think your ownership structure matters in particular in building this level of financial infrastructure. So I think as we looked at this from an employee and founder perspective, we wanted to make sure that we had 100% of the same interests of not only the regulators, but also our customers as well. And so we took an approach where like, you know, we believe we can do this well. Like we believe we can do this in a super safe, super technically advanced and really beneficial way for the entire ecosystem, regulators and customers to do it. But in order to do that, we also like take the risk with us. And so we decided to, not taking the outside capital and run it and self-fund and run as a profitable entity. I think also just from a cultural perspective, I tend to like smaller companies. I, I tend to like being able to kind of control it in my own destiny. And I think what we are doing here is fundamentally different than maybe what the rest of Silicon Valley is. And so we wanted an ownership mentality that allowed us to kind of think in things in you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 year blocks. And why venture is amazing, no matter what happens, it really doesn't enable you to think in those kind of longer term horizons. Because you do need to grow at a rate that, you know, achieves reasonable returns for your LPs and stuff like that. And I think that is something that we just didn't want to contribute to, because we think we're on a very long journey here. And, you know, there will be ups and downs, and we'll have to make decisions that maybe aren't good financial decisions, but they are the right decisions from a long term perspective. I mean, we thought this was the best model to do it. Yep. And so you're 100% employee owned, essentially. My co-founder, myself, and employees, we all own 100%. Yeah. And it's definitely a, a different, interesting model. But yeah. One thing I'll say, right, is because like, we've gotten, I've gotten a ton of questions about it. And we get a lot of people email us about our model. Is I 100% don't think it's right for everybody. You have to be very confident in your business model. You have to be very confident in your team. And it's not really for the fan of heart. And, and I think in many ways, you have to run it as a profitable entity. And I think we're lucky because the broader bank business model is one that is something that generates revenues relatively quickly so we can do it. I even generally don't actually recommend most people to do it. And so I, I think venture in the broader tech community is an incredible asset. And I think it is the right path for most people. You know, just for our kind of bespoke use case right now, it's probably not best for us. Yep, yep. And then let's start diving into some of the technology that you guys have built. So one of the things we talked about before, and I'll just quote you here, is that you know the largest pain point in building financial services in fintech is the supply chain it's built on. There's an unnecessary separation between the chartered regulated bank and the middleware and platform companies that fintechs rely on. So talk through what it's looked like to build out your own technology from the ground up, and then specifically some of the use cases 
that that's unlocked that have been pretty material to your early customers? I think for us, you know, when we think about a bank, what are they? A bank is in many ways kind of a technical abstraction on top of the Federal Reserve with a lot of kind of compliance and risk tooling built around that. You think about what a bank does at its core principle, right? It does three things. It holds money, it moves money, and it lends money out. And the holding money and the moving money, that entirely is really done with the Fed, right? Where in the end, whether yep. you're, you're making a card payment or you're making an ACH or wire or something like that, in the day, that is going to be settling between banks. And that is going to be settled through two clearinghouses in the U.S., one is the, called the Federal Reserve, and the second one is called the Clearinghouse. And so in the end, no matter what happens, like the buck kind of stops up there. And so the first thing you have to do is you have to really understand what that data model looks like, what that extraction looks like, and do a really good job kind of abstracting that. And so that's kind of where we started, right? And so you build really low-level technology to integrate with the Fed, and you allow yourself to kind of ledger, understand that from a liquidity perspective, reconciliation perspective and build really great abstractions on top of that. And so you can control that. And then you give your developers some onus and control of that as well. And then a lot of the technology is around from a risk and compliance perspective on how we actually managing these developers, how we manage the people building on the system and making sure we have the right controls perspective to really kind of orchestrate this entire system relatively automatically with a lot of other humans in the loop. And so that's really where we started. And so, you know, what we focus on now is we focus on building kind of these relatively low-level primitives and working with sophisticated companies that want to build directly on top of us. And I think where we differ from maybe the larger space is we think that is actually enough to build 95% of the financial services companies out there. And what we do is we actually put more onus on our customers and actually require them to actually control more of the flow. And so maybe we can talk about two examples here, right? Something like KYC or KYB, which is like, as a customer, you have to onboard your users. There's incredible vendors out there, from SoCure to Persona to MidDesk to LexisNexis to whoever. I'm not going to rebuild that. There's great solutions out there. So I want my customers to pick the best one for them, integrate with them. I'll double-click to make sure I like that integration. And then all kind of outsource stuff to them. And so that is like a classic example of like historically kind of in the banks of service world, the banks of service provider wants to take all of that responsibility. For us, we're being like, no, we believe in this best of breed approach, which is there are great vendors for all these different point solutions out there. You should go pick the best one for you. We are a point solution for the banking and the Fed side. And we're going to work super yeah. close with all these other vendors to go do that. I think what happens over time is my general thesis is fintech isn't profitable right now. And what you need to do, these fintechs need to do, is they need to control more of the ecosystem. Yeah, and maybe to make it real, I'd love to hear just customer stories, and they can be anonymized or you know just spoken about in broad strokes, about like why someone gets to a certain scale, realize their existing model breaks down, and then how you're able to actually help with something like that. So maybe that's something around faster two-legged ACH processing, like better transparencies into how wires are cleared, or maybe just better pricing for ACH and wires. So like, what are some of those things that people come to you, realize they have a problem, and that because of how you've built your solution, it makes a lot of sense for them? Yeah, so I can maybe kind of give two examples, right? I think the classic example I would bring to the space is like neobanking. 
And I think what happens is, you know, you want to build out from scratch. And so you want to kind of find somebody to do all of that for you because you don't have the expertise to do that, which makes a lot of sense. So you go build something, you get product market fit. Then you realize a couple of things. You actually have no control over your own destiny. And so kind of like how much economics you get from that card swipe, the onboarding of the customers, the customer experience, the marketing you can do, the marketing of that card design. If you want to do anything that isn't outside of like this little box, you can't do it. And the problem is, is this little box you get isn't profitable and it's extraordinarily competitive. And so then what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to be like, okay, how do I actually bring more of the control in-house? And so I can actually onboard the customers myself, have my own card design, control the economics of that card and stuff like that. So that's usually when you go partner with someone like us. And you usually go partner with a direct card issuer. And so you can kind of do that issuer processor, whether it's Marketa, Stripe Issue, Analytic, Visa DPS, I2C, et cetera. You could have a relationship with them. You have a relationship with us. And those are kind of the only two things you need. And that enables you to actually have full control of your program from an onboarding, from a marketing, yep. and from an economics perspective. And are there things you're able to do around either bin sponsorship or spinning up specific routing numbers for clients that are a little bit different relative to the rest of the ecosystem? Yeah. So, I mean, in general, yeah, we can do pretty much anything a customer wants, right? Assuming that they have the right team in place. And so, you know, for some of our larger customers, we've done stuff like, you know, give them a dedicated routing number. Like we allow them to actually have high configurability of Fedwire and FedACH. And so they can move stuff super quickly. They can do that in an automated way without any errors. Having really fine-grained control of this stuff can actually massively affect you in economics as you think about cards, lending, ACH, wires, international, SWIFT, all this stuff. There's so much nuance there and so so much kind of arbitrage you can do that really we just give to our clients in order for them to actually build these sophisticated programs. Yeah, I think it's a good jumping off point. Maybe talk about some of the stuff around like why having more fine-grained controls to fed wire matters, especially as you get to scale for some of the later stage fintechs. Yeah, so, you know, like I'll give a, a recent example is, you know, we have a large customer who's in a huge amount of like inbound wire volume. And they need to figure out like how that actually settles in these large kind of more FBO accounts. So some stuff we can do is we have the concept of you can actually spend infinite account numbers that actually goes into one account. And so they can automatically reconcile, even though it's coming to their account, they can immediately see across a ledger, I'm like, hey, which is which? We also give them access to the direct Fedwire message. And so if they want to do their own internal reconciliation, well, there's actually a lot of super useful data that comes in this stuff that normally just gets abstracted away. Because at most of these large banks with wires, it's still a relatively manual process. So there's a lot of fat fingering. There's a lot of just like kind of PDFing that goes along. And if you kind of strip all that away, Fedwire is actually a relatively robust protocol. Another kind of example I give is people kind of always think about wires as this like, hey, it runs from like 8 to 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. It's actually not true. Wires, you can actually send 23 hours a day, six days a week. The hours are actually imposed by the bank because they have manual people that only work six hours a day, five days a week. But with us, since we have a lot of these automated controls around it, you can actually send and receive wires almost every hour, almost every day. And so for a lot of these businesses, actually from a liquidity perspective and from a speed perspective, it can really change the operating paradigms of their business. Yeah, I think those are great material examples. So one is, you know, 
being able to send wires at almost any time versus to more limited points in the day. Yeah, I'll give like another example. It's like people always complain about ACH. It's something that we always complain about in the US. We're like, oh my gosh, I wish we had like real-time payment systems like in America, like in Europe or something like that, right? We don't. We're getting there, but it's honestly... I, I complain and, about ACH. I'm, yeah, I'm one of those know, people. Yeah. You know, it's, actually, <laughs> it's, it's not... A, if you actually look at the protocol and you actually look at the speed, it's actually not as bad as people think. And similar to Wire, a lot of the shittiness, shall we call it, of ACH is because of these legacy software providers and all these middleware providers. And so, you know, I'll give an example right now. You know, it's 1042 out here in California. I can send you an ACH and it'll probably land in your account in the next hour and a half or so. Doesn't matter where we bank in any bank in the US. That's actually not bad. It's actually not two days. It's not all this stuff. You can actually send a same day ACH. We utilize all five settlement windows. On average, we can get an ACH to you in the next hour or two. It's not real time, but heck, that thing costs like a fraction of a penny. So it's actually not bad. And so actually, the whole goal of this, right, is if you strip all the cruft away, look at the actual protocol, and actually implement and take advantage of all the the nuances around it, we can actually make these things historically having kind of like legacy, we can actually utilize them in a pretty effective way and actually make them quite a bit faster. Yeah, and that average, you know, ACH delivery time of a few hours. And then to your point, if you have fewer middleware providers, you also are probably doing it at, at lower cost. And if something does go wrong, you have more transparency into, oh, it's probably Column's fault, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to like, which one of these three people screwed something up uh, along the way? And who do I chase down to get this thing fixed? To your point of ownership and aligning incentives earlier. And backing up to the wire thing too, that, that's interesting to talk about basically spinning up a bunch of virtual accounts for incoming wires that have their own account numbers to make reconciliation a lot easier is something else that you guys can do. We're able to kind of look at this back from a bit more first principles. We pulled up and we're like, okay, like what is a bank account? What happens is we have this master account of the Fed and then we can kind of do whatever we want underneath here. And so what we've built is we've built this extremely flexible data model that's relatively composable. And you can kind of do whatever you want inside of that, right? And so if we take an individual, whether it be a business or a consumer, then underneath that, the developer or them, they can spin up infinite bank accounts they want. There's no cost to us, just a data model. And then inside of that bank account, right, you can then spin up infinite pointers because an account number is just kind of an abstract concept. It's just that it's an identifier that gets passed around to the ecosystem. So for us, it's just an ID. So you could have a million pointers to one bank account, or you yep. could have you know one pointer to a million bank accounts, right? So you can kind of really yeah. reframe yeah. this. And with that, it actually you know enables a lot of cool use cases. No, for sure. Like right now, if you've got a hundred companies sending you wires, you just get a hundred wires, and you're like, which company does this come from? But if each company who wires you has their own account number, then when the wire comes in, you're like, oh. I know who that came from. Since you know who it came from, you can associate with the invoice. Like, and then all of a sudden, your back office that maybe was trying to do the account reconciliation, you can get rid of some of that sort of. So there's like virtualization of account numbers we've seen as being very helpful for like the ramps of the world and the card space. But virtualization of like bank account numbers, not as much of a thing, although some other people do do it as well. So it's great to go <laughs> deep in some of these specific examples. But just talk through what's kind of the next 12 months look like for a column and what you're focused on. Yeah, so yeah, we're focused on right now with working with our customers to make sure that their needs are met. So it's really about building that team, expanding our team, building a lot of the process to actually make sure that we can do that at a relatively high velocity. 
and then working with kind of the largest and most sophisticated customers to do that. Right now, kind of where our primary focus on is our focus is companies as they get up that maturity. With less focus on companies is kind of like as they're trying to get up to an MVP. Our focus is mostly on like, okay, I have something that's working. I have product market fit. Now I really want to go kind of 100x this. I have the capital. Yeah. I have the team to go do that. That's really kind of where our sweet spot is. And that's really where we're focused. And we want to make sure that they have like an excellent experience that, you know, we've kind of changed this whole paradigm of like working with the banks a pain in the ass to actually something that is like, hey, this is like a super class A experience, super high touch, has great technology, and we can really partner with them over the next couple of decades. And so really over the next 12 months, it's nothing mind-blowing. It's really just focused on execution and making sure that our customers have an amazing experience with us. Yep, makes total sense. And then last question here we ask of all of the founders, which is, what advice do you have for prospective founders, people who are thinking about building something on their own, especially since you're now on your kind of second foray in the, the land of fintech? Generally, I would be cautious about taking my advice or any advice here. <laughs> I think, you know, if there's a playbook online to do something or there's someone's given advice, all the arbitrage has probably been like, you know, arbed out already. And so I, I would kind of push people to think a little bit more from first principles. I'm like, hey, what is right for me and what's right for the industry? And I think if we look at fintech historically, kind of as right now, it's a bunch of people building similar stuff to each other. And I think that's kind of proven out in the public markets and will kind of prove out in the next couple of years is these business models are not just financially sustainable. And so I think I would push people, especially in financial services, this is a huge amount of opportunity out here. There's still so much to build, but it's probably not going to look exactly like what's been built over the past five or six years. And so I do really want people to kind of change the way they think about building, change the way they think about product and marketing, and build something for a little bit of a new paradigm. Yeah, the next decade of great fintech companies is not going to look like the last. Column certainly doesn't look like, you know, very few, if any, of the previous companies. But financial services, still 10% of GDP, still highly underpenetrated from a digital technology, you know, or at least modern technology standpoint. So there's a lot of opportunity out there. Yeah. Well, William, thanks so much for um, joining us. This has been awesome. Could have talked for a lot, lot more time about many different things, but it's been really great having you on the program. Hey, Rex, thank you for the time. Um, and and thanks, thanks all your listeners. Bye.